American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a National Endowment for the Humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges project. I'm uh, really happy to be here uh, today, uh, at least um, by Skype, uh, to talk to you a little bit about some of my research. So, okay, the talk I'm giving today is called Latina and Latino Citizenship, uh, Language Rights and Identity Politics, 1880s, 1930s. So, in, in her 2006 presidential address to the Organization of American Historians, uh, Vicky Reese uh, urged her colleagues to think rethink the way that we conceptualize and periodize U.S. history. I think Vicki actually is going to be a participant, or perhaps was this fall, in the workshop. I'm not quite sure. I kind of vaguely remember her name being on the list. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm sorry that, that I, I wasn't there to, to join you for, for that. So she urged us to rethink how we, reconcept, how we conceptualize U.S. history and periodize it. For too long, she said, conventional history textbooks had written Latinas and Latinos out of the grand narrative of the nation's past, often consigning Latino history to a fleeting mention here or there, invoking uh, the inspiring and broad, uh, inspiring words and the broad trans-hemispheric vision of the Cuban patriot, Jose Martí. Uh, she challenged U.S. historians to emphasize pinnacle moments in our collective past. That is, turning points such as the U.S.-Mexico War in 1846-48, the Spanish-American War 1898, and key events such as the uh, 1848 Mendez versus Westminster ruling, which in California ended uh, segregation uh, of Mexican school children from their white counterparts, and it was a precursor to the Brown versus Board ruling in uh, 1954. For some time, Latina and Latino historians have been trying to insert Latino history into the U.S. national narrative uh, with limited success. In doing so, I think uh, we need to identify instances that illustrate how Latina and Latino lives, uh, their political action and aspiration, uh, situate them within the U.S. body politic. means we have to recover from the historical record uh, the voices that have been ignored or silenced or, or just not heard. Uh, in a small way, the work that I want to present uh, to you today attempts to do just that, to show how, in Victor Reese's words, uh, Latino history is U.S. history. So the, the work I want to share with you uh, focuses on the way uh, that language was politicized in the years leading up to and just following New Mexico's admission into the Union as a state in 1912. Uh, from as early as, the 18, as 1850, Lawmakers in Washington and observers across the country expressed reservations about not complete opposition to New Mexico's statehood, citing the population's large Mexican population and popular use of Spanish in public realms such as in the courts and in the school. On more than two dozen occasions over the course of six decades, uh, legislation was introduced to Congress to make New Mexico a state but bills were repeatedly rejected or blocked or abandoned in the reconciliation process. The history of New Mexico, while arguably exceptional because of the state's particular history of Spanish settlement from uh, 18, 
1821, Mexican rule from 1821 to 1848, and its uniquely large Spanish-speaking population. Uh, there were about uh, 60,000 Spanish-speaking residents in New Mexico when the U.S. acquired it in 1848. Nevertheless, the history of New Mexico suggests how both language issues and race have worked position Latinos and Latinas on the margins of US, uh, the U.S. body politic. But I think it's also illustrative of the ways that some Latinas and Latinos have envisioned and then strategically expressed their identity in terms that have been more powerful to U.S. lawmakers and to the public at large. So a key feature of identity for Spanish-speaking New Mexicans from the 1880s through the 1930s uh, was their identification with their Spanish heritage, uh, history, and language. And it's an identification that a lot of uh, scholars, including myself, we refer to it as Hispanidad. Uh, loosely translated uh, in English, it means Hispanicity or uh, Spanishness. So in my presentation, I want to focus on three individuals who played uh, key roles in the articulation of New Mexico's identity uh, during the period in question. Aurora Lucero, Eusebio Chacon, and Aurelio Espinosa were three individuals who were part of a loose affiliation of well-educated Novo Mexicanos, whom I refer to as Hispanistas or Hispanists. They gave voice uh, to this uh, sentiment of Hispanidad, and they sought actively to engender it among their less educated compatriots. So in history textbooks, they exalted the conquistadores as their ancestral forebears. Speeches, they defended the Spanish language as a symbol of their colonial heritage. And in academic treatises, they presumed to retrace their regional idioms and folklore to the Iberian Peninsula instead of to Mexico, for example. And in grade school practices and policies, they honored and sought to preserve uh, the cultural traditions of uh, their students. In doing so, New Mexico's Hispanistas positioned their culture in opposition to the Anglo-American political and cultural hegemony, while at the same time they presumed to join Anglos at the table of civic and racial, uh, me, civic equality and racial whiteness. That endeavor, however, met with mixed results. So I'll talk first about Aurora Lucero. Okay, so New Mexico, here's a, just a snapshot of New Mexico in uh, 1900. Uh, this is the time during which uh, our, these three individuals who I'm talking about um, were circulating ideas, they were writing books, they were giving speeches, they were in the newspaper, etc. They were publishing uh, academic uh, uh, treatises and what have you. Uh, population was approaching 200,000, well beyond the, the, the minimal amount that was needed for uh, statehood. Uh, but yet it took uh, 62 years fully um, from the time New Mexico was incorporated as a territory of the U.S., that is, an incorporated territory of the U.S., in 1850 uh, until 1912 for, for New Mexico to finally be admitted into the Union. And here's an example of the kind of population growth that really accelerated uh, at the turn of the century. And you can see that by the turn of the century there were nearly 200,000, and within, uh, within uh, just 10 years, of the population um, grew by nearly 50%. So the population was growing tremendously in large part to an influx of people from the East Coast. 
So it's in the context of this, this, the debate over statehood and whether New Mexico had the right kind of population to become a state that these three individuals were circulating their ideas. So, okay, so Arbella Lucero, she's thought of as kind of the defender of the mother tongue, and I say that because she was very young, she was in high school, when uh, on a chilly February day in 1911, this was on the eve of statehood for New Mexico, as a, as a young student, um, she, uh, pardon me, college student, sorry, um, she uh, stood before an assembly of educators in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and delivered a, a much celebrated speech that appeared in the English and the Spanish uh, newspapers. Um, and I believe I sent some documents, uh, both in English and Spanish, to that covered that speech. With statehood imminent, she proclaimed, Spanish Americans had to brace themselves for heightened attacks against uh, their language and culture. A year earlier, President William Howard Taft and congressional leaders had sought to make English the sole language of the government and of the classroom instruction. That initiative, however, was turned back just weeks before Lucero's speech, when voters approved a, a state constitution which guaranteed the rights of, quote, children of Spanish descent, end of quote, to receive instruction in their native language. Uh, the elected officials would not be required, as Washington leaders had hoped, to speak English without the aid of an interpreter. Um, Lucero could not fathom why some Americans in the name of national unity felt an urgency to banish uh, the Spanish language from public realms. Did they not know that Spanish was the legacy of the conquistadores who had endured untold hardship to bring Christianity and civilization, in her words, uh, to the new world? Could they not see that Spanish would be the principal conduit of commerce with Spanish America? Uh, the matter, Lucero implied, boiled down to ignorance about the value of Spain's linguistic and cultural imprint on the Americas. Language and culture, as well as an attachment to land and to Catholic tradition, comprised the foundation of Spanish-American identity. Anglo hegemony was the social context for that identity. So here's a portion of her speech that I translated uh, into English uh, she said, it is claimed by those who passed this provision, the provision that, that English be the only language, that the Spanish-American will become a better citizen by depriving him of the use of his vernacular. In resorting to such a course, it would seem that the contrary effect might be produced, that he might be made a worse citizen. Spanish is the language of our parents. Today it is our own, and it will be the language of our children and our children's children. It is a language bestowed upon us by those who discovered the new world. We are American citizens for certain and must learn the language of our country, yet we need not negate in the process our roots, our race, our language, our traditions, our history, or our ancestry, because we shall never be ashamed of these. On the contrary, they shall make us proud. So she was just uh, praised throughout the Spanish-speaking press. The, uh, the turn of the century in New Mexico was really the, like a renaissance of, uh, of Spanish language press. Uh, there were literally hundreds of uh, small newspapers that had cropped up from the 1880s through the 1930s throughout New Mexico. Um, and uh, thanks to digital technologies, they are available in a lot of databases, such as the Hispanic American Newspapers database um, that I think is put out by uh, University of Houston. Uh, not quite 
share who the provider is. So anyhow, you can actually look up some of her texts in that database, uh, which is how I was able to recover some of these uh, for you. Okay, so Lucero, uh, although Lucero embraced the English language with patriotic fervor, she equally defended her native tongue as a sign of her ethnic identity and difference from Anglo-Saxons. Uh, the use of two languages was not incongruent with American citizenship, she argued. Rather, it would make for more intelligent and a more prepared uh, electorate. It also promised to facilitate more trade with countries to the South. But at a time when progressive reformers had formulated Americanization programs for school children and adults, most Americans saw uh, a second language not as a commercial or cultural asset, but as a barrier to fuller integration into the body politic. So in the closing months of an arduous uh, statehood battle, New, New Mexicans, Mobile Mexicanos uh, in Spanish, uh, increasingly pointed to their language as an emblem of their ethnic pride and identity, and as a link to their collective history. Lucero's 1911 speech address, uh, excuse me, her address betrays the aware her awareness to the shifting balance of power in the territory. The previous decade had witnessed the influx of more than 120,000 white Americans, and that's what that graph that I showed you uh, depicted. And those Americans uh, brought with them attitudes, beliefs, and values which they sought to impose on the native community. By the time statehood was achieved, Anglos had come to occupy key posts in government, cultural institutions, and in education. Following statehood, their grasp on power would be expanded, but Anglos did not dislodge mobile Mexicano politicos from all major offices. Rather, a kind of gentleman's agreement was reached whereby Anglos and Global Mexicanos divided the political oils. Um, so the second, uh, so it's in this context of statehood that uh, Aurora Lucero, this young student, uh, becomes fairly well known for her defense of the Spanish language because she sees it as an asset, not as a, as a deficit or a problem. Um, now, prior to her, fully a, a decade before her, uh, language and identity was, uh, was um, had become a real touchstone for controversy when uh, when a young Protestant uh, missionary, uh, Nellie Snyder, um, reportedly slipped in slipped a text, an editorial, into a local uh, local newspaper, uh, the Review, while the journal's editor was out of town. So on October 6, 16, 1901, 600 Nuevo Mexicanos took to the streets of Las Vegas, New Mexico, to denounce uh, that newspaper editorial, which bore the title, The Spanish American. Snyder's editorial attacked New Mexicans' Spanish-speaking residents as slovenly and semi-pagan, degraded and superstitious, of mixed Indian and Iberian blood, and uh, as a people who lived in mud huts and who slept on piles of rags for beds. On reading the piece, Ezequiel Cabeza de Vaca, who was an editor of one of the Spanish-language newspapers called La Voz del Pueblo, called on Lobo Mexicanos to converge on the county courthouse and express their indignation. And so they got together in this, uh, this, one, uh, uh, this one day of um, protest, in what's called a junta pública, a public protest, which was hastily convened. And they drafted a resolution that proclaimed Snyder to be an ingrate 
uh, and a hypocrite and a demagogue who, having enjoyed their hospitality, uh, having moved there from, uh, from the East Coast, had paid them back with slander and infamies. Snyder now was nowhere to be found. He was branded a persona non grata and banished from Las Vegas. The junta invited a young man, a bespectacled uh, young lawyer, uh, Eusebio Chacon, to step forward and address the crowd in Spanish. And he said, uh, said author, that is uh, Nelly Snyder, begins to astonish us by saying that the Spanish-American or Mexican is part Spanish and part Indian, that he resembles his Spanish and Indian ancestors in language, customs, appearances, and habits. How she has twisted the linguistic canons to combine Spanish and Indian tongues is a mystery to us. I am Spanish-American, as are those who hear me. No other blood circulates through my veins but that which was brought by Don Juan de Oñate in 1598 and by the illustrious ancestors of my name. Uh, if there's any place in Spanish America or in the former Spanish colonies that has conserved the physiognomatic traits of the raza conquistadora or the conquering race, it is in New Mexico. And so Chacon, his fiery discourse was really, it captured the spirit of that protest. It also fueled indignation among his uh, compatriots throughout New Mexico. And in the days that followed his speech, uh, which was a precursor to Lucero's, was printed on front pages of the Spanish newspapers throughout uh, the territory. Um, and he was heralded as, a, as an eloquent and fearless defender of the people's honor. So it's interesting, he's invoking sort of the, what I like to think of as a language of blood, this notion that blood, uh, which he was, what he was really referring to as sort of race as we think of it, or bloodlines or heritage, um, that he would kind of embrace the Spanish sort of uh, conquering race as, as his identity, as the identity of his listeners. So when he did so on that fall afternoon in 1901, it was not foremost as an exercise of his class privilege, uh, although certainly, you know, his social position was not lost on protesters. He was educated at Notre Dame. Uh, rather, he was a defender of the people's honor, and he was selected for that purpose by the Junta Pública, by the gathering there. And in the context of that moment, Chacon was speaking with the consent of and also in solidarity with his audience. He identified with the village traditions and the cultural practices and religious beliefs that Nellie Snyder so vehemently condemned. What makes Chacon's 1908 speech so historically momentous is that it encompassed a wide range of civic ambitions and concerns, cultural symbols and historical reference that were familiar to the audience and that momentarily transcended class and political boundaries. Chacon's defense of global Mexicano's Spanish blood was more than a visceral response to Nelly Snyder's claim of miscegenation. It was an assertion of identity rooted in a conquest uh, a, a, her a conquest heritage and fervent Catholicism. Chacon's speech embodies several components of a Spanish-American vernacular that can be thought of as a language of blood. As I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, blood was it was a code word for identity. It conjured up a lexicon of, of symbols, historical references, social relations, and racial suppositions that were fundamental to. To the Mexican self-perception and self-definition. 
but was also a convenient tool for fashioning and deploying collective memory. Chacon's interpretation of the Spanish play is less an affirmation of biological truths than a pronouncement of his identification with the conquistadores. But purity, Chacon conceded in that same speech, uh, was perhaps more an ideal than reality. As he said, quote, um, some mixture between Spaniards and Indians has occurred, has occurred uh, true, but so slight in such rare cases that to say that we are as a community a mixed race is neither proven by history nor stands up to scientific analysis. But even if it were true that we were a mixed race, uh, there is nothing dishonorable or degrading in that. So it's very interesting, you know, this speech in which he's proclaiming identification with, you know, Spaniards, right? He's saying on the one hand, oh, we're, we're not mixed with Indians, we're, we're not something similar to Mexicans. But even if we were, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with uh, uh, embracing their mixed heritage. So he's kind of hedging his bets because he knows that, in fact, the truth is that there was, all, there's always been a mixture of peoples uh, throughout Mexico and throughout the Spanish colonial world. Okay, so there he is, the young Chacon, the fiery young Chacon. There he is with his father, and uh, you know, he's a lawyer, so he goes on to, to, um, to write quite a bit. Uh, and in fact, Chacon would write um, a couple of small uh, novellas uh, that were published well before he gave that speech, um, and then have appeared recently. In fact, a book just came out on Eusebio Chacon, um, this year, I believe it was, earlier this year or late last year, by Gabriel Melendez, um, who compiled all of the writings that he could find by Eusebio Chacon, translated them into English. Uh, it's available from the University of New Mexico Press for those of you who are interested. Okay, so at the dawn of the 20th century, Nuevo uh, Mexicanos were painfully aware that their racial identity mattered particularly if they wish to enjoy social and civic equality with Anglo-Americans. So to claim Spanish blood was to declare one's difference from Indian and Anglo-American neighbors. And it was to lay claim to a European, and, and you can read that as racially white heritage. It was to, aver, uh, to, to, to uh, affirm one's historical attachment to the land by way of conquest at a time when a lot of people were invading the territory, settling the territory, and New Mexicans were aware that they were losing uh, a grasp on the land itself. And it was also to distinguish oneself from the maligned mixed-blood Mexican immigrant, uh, and Mexicans were coming to the United States in larger and larger numbers to work on the railroads and mines and uh, in uh, agriculture. As early as the 1880s, when Mexicanos, people of Mexican background, were being racialized as non-white, or off-white, and off-white is a term that was coined by the legal historian Laura Gomez in, in her book, an excellent book called Manifest Destinies. So as early as the 1880s, local boosters sought to convince lawmakers in Washington and tourists in Santa Fe that Nuevo Mexicanos were whiter and more European, and their history was more enchanting than was popularly perceived by most Americans. New Mexico's admission into the Union uh, was at stake. So in books and speeches, uh, Hispanophiles, and a couple of important ones were a guy named Charles Lummis, who you're familiar with the Southwest, or the idea of the Spanish Southwest, which was um, promoted uh, by tourist, tourist boosters in California, 
Charles Lamas was an important um, an author who, who popularized uh, the Spanish history of the Southwest. So Hispanic followed by Lamas and the, the one-time New Mexico governor, Laverne Bradford Prince, marshaled the creation of what many scholars refer to as a Spanish fantasy heritage. We'll come back to that heritage uh, later on uh, at the end of my talk here. In the 1880s through the 1920s, Hispanophiles, people who love Spanish history and culture, along with a growing cadre of scholars in the United States, endeavored to rewrite four centuries of Spanish civilization in the Western Hemisphere by painting romantic, a romantic picture of Spain's colonial past. Responding to the prevailing black legend, they painted a white one. They glorified the memory of the conquistador who had their terms, pacified and then civilized the Indian. They extolled the selfish missionary who had defied all hardship to spread Christianity among uh, the so-called savage Indians. And they authored these epic tales and wistful sketches of Spain's imperial grandeur. So, uh, there are a number of people who are uh, prominent historians like Herbert Eugene Bolton, uh, Charles Chapman, both of them from Berkeley, popularized the Spanish Southwest. But in addition, New Mexico had a, another scholar of their own who was a, a linguist, uh, Stanford. He was born in New Mexico, born in uh, Southern Colorado actually, but uh, raised on the border between Colorado and New Mexico. Uh, and his name was Aurelio Macedonio Espinosa. As a young man, Espinosa rambled the back roads and hamlets of Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado, documenting linguistic archaisms of the region and collecting cuentos populares, uh, folk tales from, from the elders. And his, his effort was to try to retrace the villagers' cultural roots to the Iberian Peninsula. He had this theory, and the theory was that if he could find these archaisms, uh, for example, in New Mexico, people even today will use this archaic verb um, uh, instead of saying uh, somos, we are, somos uh, mexicanos they would say semos mexicanos, which is an old sort of uh, colloquial, uh, excuse me, an old anachronism in the language. So he would pick up on those, um, he would pick up on those, and he would try to use those to demonstrate that they can be traced all the way back to Spain. And, and the effort was that if he could show that there was a linguistic tie to Spain, he could also prove that the New Mexicans were sort of racially Spanish as well. And the reason that's important is because if they want to have statehood, they want their own government, if they're being scrutinized and criticized for being not white enough to have a state government, then it's very important for them to show that they're, they're of this European culture, they're of this conquistorial kind of heritage. So Espinosa became, and to some extent remains, one of the most fervent and ideologically bent uh, Hispanistas of, of his time. Um, he was driven by the conviction that his forebearers, the conquerors, the conquistadores, had left these linguistic and racial imprints on the people and on the region. He authored more than 200 articles, several scholarly monographs, and, and on, on folk tales, and 22 textbooks on Spanish grammar and composition and literature. I won't have time to get into this, but I've, in my research in, in um, on Espinosa, it's brought me to Columbia University, actually. Uh, there was a Spaniard named Federico de Onís, who was the founder of Hispanic, uh, Hispanic studies at um, 
at Columbia and was recruited in 1916 or 1917 uh, to Columbia and he became a colleague and a correspondent with Espinosa and the two of them uh, you know had a good working relationship um, those of you who know who are familiar with uh, the Hispanic Society of America uh, on the far upper uh, west side I think it's about 156 uh, in Broadway something thereabouts um, we'll know that um, there was this whole movement in New York in the 19-teens and 20s to sort of enshrine Spanish culture and art and, and history. And Federico de Onís, Columbia University, was really at the center of that. And he was a collaborator and, and, a, and a colleague with Espinosa. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Uh, so there, there are not any comprehensive study studies of Espinosa's life or his ideas. Uh, we don't actually know where all of his correspondence is. We, we don't know where his archives are. Uh, Stanford University doesn't actually have a large collection of his archives. Uh, I've been there and I haven't been able to locate them. Uh, so we have to kind of discern what his motives are through the few correspondences we can find and through his publications. Okay, so by looking at those, um, those records, we might gain critical insights into the ideology of Hispanidad. And we might analyze expressions of Spanishness within the context of regional identity politics, as well as a transnational movement called Hispanismo, linking Spain to its former colonies. If we can look beyond Hispanidad's touristic and racially troubling facade, that is, its kind of clean whiteness, and if we can contain the impulse to dismiss it as a fantasy heritage, something that's just invented for tourism or for sake of statehood, then we might better complicate our understanding of the divergent ways that some Latinos and Latinas have responded to their racialization and variously resisted or accommodated or participated in the formulation of political and racial identities. More broadly, understanding how race, language, and identity have figured into New Mexico's history helps us to better situate Latina and Latino narratives within the broader contours of U.S. history, so that we might take up Vicky Ruiz's 2006 admonition to think of Latino history as U.S. history. In the past few years, a number of scholars, including uh, Maria Montoya and Felipe Gonzalez, Erlinda gonzalez Berry, Inado Padilla, Gabriela Menendez, and many others have helped us to understand the complex political and ideological and gendered and racializing forces that have figured into Spanish-American identity in New Mexico. But I contend that we have yet to fully come to terms with Spanishness as both a racial and ideological project that helps to explain the pervasive and enduring allure of Hispanidad today. It's tempting to view Hispanidad as a kind of artifact of a few elites and misguided Mexicanos. But doing so does not help us understand why Hispanidad today remains deeply rooted in the historical imaginary of many of the families of all social ranks uh, in New Mexico. So um, I want to give you a, a few vignettes here to kind of uh, to sort of finish up. Um, and uh, there's a one particularly vivid one in which it kind of demonstrates that Today in New Mexico, for any of those, any of you who might have visited New Mexico and spoken with people from New Mexico, you might know that um, 
that Spanish heritage is very political and it's very, it's very um, uh, fiercely defended by a lot of people. Um, and it's, I had the, the good fortune in, in June of 2008 to be in Madrid, Spain, when uh, a candidate for president, um, whose name is Bill Richardson, former uh, governor of New Mexico, was visiting Madrid on a campaign to promote commercial and cultural links between Spain and New Mexico. Uh, speaking at a luncheon in the gilded halls of La Casa de America, and surrounded by diplomats and academics and the press, um, they let me in there. <laughs> Richardson issued what sounded like the stump speech of an aspiring Secretary of State. This is after it was clear he wasn't going, he, he didn't have the nomination. Um, the United States, he said, needed to return to a politics defined by mutual interest and multilateral diplomacy. An Obama administration would reverse Bush's failed go-it-alone strategy in world affairs, he said, and would herald a new era marked by closer ties between the United States and its European allies, foremost among them, Spain. The U.S. and Spain, Richardson said, were bound together by commercial interests and security concerns, as well as by cultural ties. Spain's imprint on the United States was everywhere evident in the growing Hispanic population, which at that time was approaching 15% of the, the nation's total. Now it's uh, well over 16, it's uh, approaching 17%. Um, the growing Hispanic population in the broad and the pardon in the broad presence of the Spanish language. And um, Spain's imprint on the United States was everywhere evident. It was evident in the growing Hispanic population, in the broad presence of the Spanish language, and in the colonial history of the United States Southwest. America's Latinos owed much of their heritage to Spain. Spain, Richardson boasted, to the obvious delight of the Spanish hosts, is our madre patria, our mother country, our mother homeland. Uh, and of course, you know, everybody, uh, the press picked up on that and there, were, there was a lot of applauding and uh, people were very happy to hear him uh, claim Spain as the motherland of New Mexico and as Latinos generally. Richardson's speech, delivered in eloquent Spanish, was warmly received in the press. Many saw it as the promise of a shift in U.S.-Spanish relations which had soured following the 2004 terrorist bombings that left in Madrid that left 200 dead. It was an event that was blamed uh, by many uh, on a conservative uh, Osnard administration's collaboration with the U.S. in its war on terror. By some accounts, it would seem that Spain's hopes for a rapprochement with the United States uh, were pinned on the prospect of Richardson's nomination to a high post in the Obama administration, such as the Secretary of State. Both at home and abroad, many saw Richardson as a symbol of Latinos' growing presence of political power. El Mundo, which is one of Spain's leading newspapers, uh, referred to him as the leader of the Hispanic community in the United States. But for sure, what he was back in 2008 was a kind of emissary of Hispanidad. So, um, so as I said, you know, Spanish identity is very much alive in New Mexico. This is about 1976, I think it is. I have the date in my book somewhere, but uh, this is a family photo. It's my uncle. And he's reenacting, yeah, he's reenacting, he's reenacting the 
Coronado uh, entry into New Mexico, which uh, uh, was was um, celebrated widely, and um, and in the small towns and villages, they still do these reenactments of the entradas of the Vargas and Yate and uh, and uh, Coronado. Um, you know, so they dress up as Spaniards coming in on horseback, etc. And this was one that we dug up from the family. So I had to live with this this heritage, the Spanish heritage, growing up in Los Angeles, in really a, a predominantly Mexican, Mexican-American neighborhood, uh, going across the street, talking to, we, we called her Big Mary, it's Maria. She, she used to, you know, feed us, you know, her, her, her great tamales, handmade tamales, and what have you. And, and, and we'd say, well, she'd say, well, where you, where's your family? Well, we're Spanish. <laughs> and she would just shake her head and say, here, you know, have an enchilada. <laughs> so it really is the source of sort of my book, The Language of Blood, because I wanted to I wanted to kind of figure out the quandary of identity that I had to kind of endure, kind of moving between Mexican and my Mexican reality, my Mexican American reality, and then and then this sort of Spanish heritage that we lived at home. We used to go back to the to the fiestas every year in New Mexico with my family, take these road trips back for the for the three day fiesta. Um, so anyway, that's what I'm really wrestling with here in my, in my own work. I want to show you a couple of other things. There, there's a, there's a real, some of you might know about this. In recent years, there have been statues erected to Juan de Oñate. Now, Juan de Oñate uh, led an expedition um, and, and, in 1599, and he was responsible for the was responsible for the certain depredations on Indians and, and the killing of more than 200 Akama Indians. Uh, and as, as a reprisal for their killing of, of Spanish priests. And as punishment, after, after he rounded up the youth, uh, young men uh, from Akama, the Pueblo Indian uh, Akama men, as reprisal, he cut off the right foot of these young men. And the Akama, uh, the barbarity of that moment is, is not uh, has not been forgotten. It's very much alive. It's a very sore, sore point. Um, whenever people sort of talk glowingly about Spanish heritage in New Mexico, native peoples bristle uh, because they know the history of Akama. Um, and so there's this statue that was erected in the 1990s on the anniversary of Onyate's uh, uh, 1598 uh, expedition through uh, New Mexico, started in 1598, and um, many people saw him as this gallant Spaniard marching through New Mexico to civilize it and Christianize it. But the native peoples didn't see it that way. And in reprisal for the erection of that statue, they cut off the right foot of Onyate. <laughs> and they held it captive. And they sent a photo to the newspaper and they said, this is, this is just a symbol. This is just how we feel about the statue. Eventually, so they, this is actually the repaired statue there. But, and then interestingly, almost simultaneous with this, there was a controversy uh, 270 miles or so to the south in El Paso. Uh, John Hauser, this uh, very esteemed sculptor whose father had worked on Mount Rushmore, um, 
had this idea that he was going to build the largest, the world's largest equestrian statue, a bronze statue, in honor of Juan de Oñate. Because Juan de Oñate came up through El Paso on his way up to, up to into New Mexico. And El Paso was looking for a tourist kind of angle to sort of re, uh, to gentrify their downtown, which was really, a, and really still is, a very uh, hard, hard, hard scrabble sort of area. So he thought he would, you know, celebrate Oñate with this huge statue of what he envisioned to be this very gallant, um, uh, gallant uh, Spaniard. But again, native peoples came out and a coalition, a coalition of protesters, not just native peoples, Mexican, Mexican Americans, uh, Spanish Americans came and protested. And it's the subject of a documentary called The Last Conquistador. Wonderful for showing in class. It, it's a 50-minute documentary that I show all the time because I, I want to highlight to my students how memory and history and forgetfulness, the act of forgetting, the way that tourism, the way that ethnic tourism, and the, sort of the commemoration of these statues, uh, there are all kinds of theories and stuff. Uh, Pierre Nora has this concept, this French uh, historian has this concept of memory sites, right? Read the memoir. And he talks about how these statues really serve to sort of validate a particular history. And so it's a very important when art is contested like this that people seek the truth. Very interesting. I don't want to spoil the ending of that documentary because it's so poignant. But suffice it to say that the artist, um, the artist had a very, very interesting reckoning with his forgetfulness of the past, his his ignorance of the past, and he became enlightened in a way that really makes the makes the film really hits home the power of memory in history. So with that, I'll just conclude by saying. You know, part of my passion with history is to figure out ways that we can take uh, voices that have been obscured, voices that have been ignored or forgotten, uh, and bring them to light and insert them into our, our large national narrative so that they're not forgotten. Um, and I think contestation is, is a part of that. So thank you for your patience and your time. I enjoyed uh, being with you.